Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Forner, a physiotherapist working in pelvic health, as well as a new student researcher on the fun, long road to a PhD, where we will be looking at pelvic floor problems and exercise. I'm here to bring you information from leading professionals on all aspects surrounding pelvic health for any gender and any age, from the vast range of pelvic floor problems to exercise and sport. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hey everyone, Happy New Year. Welcome back to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm going to keep this quick because our guest today is amazing. Uh, Her name's Jilly Bond, if you haven't heard of her. She's a clinical specialist physiotherapist who leads the pelvic health service for a private hospital in South Wales, as well as her own private clinic in Cardiff. Jilly runs continuing professional development courses in physiotherapy management of visceral pain syndromes called the Happy Bladder Course, and she'll be launching online in 2018. So after this podcast, you will definitely want to jump onto that. In 2016, Jilly completed her master's degree at the University of Bradford and published her research on the use of therapeutic wands in the management of bladder pain syndrome. She sits on the executive team for Pelvic Obstetric and Gynecological Physiotherapy, which is the UK professional network affiliated to the Chartered Society of Physiotherapy, is a peer reviewer within their journal subcommittee, and runs the journal research Twitter feed at JPOGP. So I hope you guys enjoy listening to her as much as I did. There is a funny background noise. We only worked it out at the very end. It was a fan of her computer and I'm not tech enough to work out how to get rid of it. So, but it shouldn't distract you guys from the amazing information that she has. Before we jump into the podcast, here is a quick word from one of our amazing sponsors. Hi, I'm Molly Galbraith, co-founder of Girls Gone Strong and creator of the Coaching and Training Women Academy, the world's first online academy providing evidence-based, body-positive, interdisciplinary, women-specific certifications for health and fitness professionals. And I'm so excited to tell you about our pre- and postnatal coaching certification opening for enrollment February 6th. This certification was created and reviewed by 16 world-class women's health experts, including six physiotherapists, four pre- and postnatal experts, three PhDs in psychology, exercise science, and molecular biology, an OBGYN, a doula, and a nurse practitioner who's also a midwife. If you're listening to this podcast, you clearly care about high-quality women's health information, and so do we. In fact, in regard to our certification, Lori Forner herself said, don't roll your eyes, this upcoming online certification program for pre- and postnatal health and fitness professionals is set to blow all of our socks off. And she should know, as Lori's taking the certification herself. If you'd like to learn more about our pre- and postnatal coaching certification, visit academy.girlsgonestrong.com where you can join our pre-sale list to enroll early and save $200. And if you have any questions, just email us at info at girlsgonestrong.com. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. I loved the the recent vlog that you did, which I'm going to put the link in the show notes. We wanted to talk about the wand use with certain types of pelvic floor dysfunction um, and how physiotherapists use the wand for certain patients with pelvic floor muscle tension, the reasons that we think 
we're using it and what we think we're doing with it, I think you will um, demystify that really well. So welcome to the show. Great. I'm really excited to be on here. I've been listening to this podcast for a long time. Oh, yay. We have a listener. <laughs> um, all right. So what kind of things do you tend to use the wand for? Uh, the wand is a really useful tool when someone is unable to um, access their own pelvic floor. So we use it for relaxing the muscles of the pelvis. Um, and because of its shape and its um, cur- slight curve, both of the, the products that we use in the UK have a curve. It's a little bit easier for people to get right throughout their pelvic floor and to insert it rather than something like a dilator or um or even kind of uh, vibrators and sex toys that are, are in that area. Um, they, they are vaguely designed for use in the pelvic floor. What I have to say is from a UK point of view, the Therawand pelvic wand isn't CE marked yet. So we have to be really careful about when we're using it with our patients because it's technically an off-license use. So you need to discuss that with the patient for UK physios. Um, but the IC, Easy, IC Relief, EC Magic, is now on CE licensed for... Um, use within pelvic floor as a therapeutic device which means that you find to go ahead and prescribe it as such but as physios we're allowed to discuss these things with our physios and uh, with our patients and tell them where we're getting them from so that's just my little legal note um so in a lot of these pain states well in fact in all pelvic pain states where you have any myofascial pain in the pelvic floor working with that muscle to allow it to achieve a relaxed state um, and have less pain while it moves, achieve a full range of motion is key to what we're doing as physios. And I think you'll agree that we get a lot of change in symptoms that you wouldn't necessarily initially think of with just releasing that pelvic floor muscle. So you can get very drastic changes in urgency and frequency of the bladder. Um, You can get changes in pain with defecation by changing how tight the muscles are and it's barely anything to do with actually how tight the muscles are I was just going to say is it yes yeah it's not but the one's really lovely so uh, when you we know that when you do this release you get these lovely relaxation of symptoms you get a bit more of a normalized optimized organ function downstairs the vulva might hurt less the pelvis might ache less and the patient goes away and they get on with their lives hopefully because you've you've got them to the point where they can do more um and then their pain comes back and then they come back to see you next week and the next week and the next week and all the evidence shows that you need to do it for at least about six weeks before you get any long-term relief of symptoms um and so what i i kind of had a look at this to begin with to say uh, i was in the nhs in a situation where i couldn't see patients for follow-up um for about six weeks so if I know that the evidence shows I need to be doing it weekly for six weeks, how am I going to achieve that? And a lot of the ladies that I was seeing weren't able to access their own pelvic floors with their thumbs or fingers or in other other ways. So I tried to use a wand with them. So I did some, I had a little look at how we could use the wand. And it's, I think it's a really useful tool when you aren't able to access your pelvic floor yourself or you um don't feel comfortable with accessing your pelvic floor but you're comfortable enough to use a therapeutic device and that from a from a psychological point of view is really important because the wand and your own fingers really really improve that connection with your own pelvic floor which is key 
to what we're trying to achieve. Um, so what kind of specific pelvic floor problems, like you tend to work with bladder pain syndrome, interstitial cystitis, what other kind of issues or specific dysfunctions do you find that doing some sort of release, whether it's the wand or not, do you usually use it for? So I, I work about 80% of my caseload is with pelvic pain. Um, and I find that any uh, the pelvic floor work is really useful in all pains. So uh, occasionally I'll have a low back pain, which I've screened and has maybe some bladder symptoms and bowel symptoms that doesn't have a pelvic floor that's overactive but if you've got any overactivity of the pelvic floor in association with a visceral pain syndrome be that IBS or um, endometriosis or bladder pain syndrome any of the organs that are associated you're going to get a significant result um, or at least a, a significant change in symptoms from working with those tissues um, the same with vulvodynia um, and we know that we've got some lovely studies showing that um, myofascial work in vulvodynia also alleviates symptoms. Now, I'm not saying it's the be all and end all, by far it's really not but it's a really useful tool that we have as a physiotherapist to, to use with all of our patients with pelvic pain so um, there won't, I don't think there would be a patient that comes through the door with pelvic pain that I wouldn't want necessarily be, to be thinking about doing some myofascial release with at some point it's just how you achieve that in in what position in what way so when you talk about myofascial release um yeah what are you talking about well i'm gonna i'm gonna reclaim this um this uh, uh phrase a little bit um i did during my research and i did it very um cognitively a uh, cognitively wrong like wrong word cognitive you know the word you know what i mean <laughs> i did it before thought because myofascial release has become a term um, in physio that's really contentious and I think that's because we we think it's many different things and there is one particular technique certainly in the UK that we've become uh, come to accept that myofascial release covers now when I did my research I had no good um, term for what I was achieving in the pelvic floor and what I was achieving was a relaxation of the soft tissues so fascia and muscle fascia to some extent how much it stretches how much it releases we don't know but i was changing the neurological activation or the the, the resting tone of those muscles and certainly from a search term or a mesh term point of view there weren't any good kind of uh, words to cover what we were achieving I didn't want to use something like massage because um, there are many different types of massage and one of the one of my things from that I learned through doing this research was that we as therapists and researchers need to be a lot more clear about what we're doing so in my research I've published absolutely everything I did step by step mm. so that you can put it apart and say well why did you do this um, and actually I learned a lot from that because now I don't use that protocol at all. Um, there are elements of it that are useful, but I've learned from that and we've moved on in the literature since then. But it's there so people can go, well, that's what she was doing at this time. So myofascial release is something I've, I'm claiming again as what we do as physios when we place our finger onto a pelvic floor and we apply pressure. Now, if we want to go into the kind of um, the research behind what is effective in myofascial release in pain states we know that you've got to do 
Um, you've got to be repeating it over about six weeks. And that's the, the first really interesting key point is that why do we have to do it so often? So if when you put your finger onto a pelvic floor and it's painful, which is a positive indicator of many different conditions, but certainly in bladder pain syndrome, um, it would be one of our key indicators of a, a diagnostic measure. Um, when you place your finger on that pelvic floor and it hurts, if you then affect a change, and by the time that your patient has left the clinic, their pelvic floor is feeling better, so maybe you've gone from like an 8 out of 10 to a 2 out of 10, why does that hurt again? Why do you have to do it again? Well, that I will be <laughs> looking into in more detail, but I think we've got quite a lot of evidence for why that might be, and it's very much based in how your brain perceives what is going on there and also what is what is going on there. Um, so we know that you need to do it six weeks in a row and that's to reinforce to the brain that actually it can be in a quieter state, it can be in a calmer state. We know that you need to do it gently. So when I say gently, um, I mean not, I, I call it on my courses sub-threshold. So if pain is your, your, your point of the threshold which you're trying to avoid, you've got to be sub-threshold for that patient, which means it's different for everyone. For some people, it will just be inserting your finger. In others, it may be that you're able to put your body weight through them. But um, you've got to be gentle with that patient and you've got to read their symptoms. So when I have my finger on the pelvic floor in any of my patients, I am doing lots of tiny little adjustments and lots of uh, observing how they are um, in their mannerisms. So what they're saying is very often not at all what's going on no don't forget oh my goodness yeah. they're like no 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 I'm fine and they're turning yeah. different colors and you can see them having a little panic attack and you're like no you're not fine yeah so and it's and in that moment catching it and saying well look you're you I can see that you're flushing I can see that you're sweating um this is this is you being under threat at this moment in time so I want you to come back to me and say well you know look I, this is a your therapist we've obviously built a relationship by this point you can calm down but I also use all brainy tricks. So at that moment, if I see that they're on the verge, but I might be able to calm them down a little bit, I will find ways to make their brain happy. So I'll already have found out if they've got a cat or a dog or a baby or a hobby or a holiday coming up or whatever. And I'll get them talking about that. You've got to find a way to make that person's face light up and make them happy. The minute that you get a happy thought, something that really, truly makes them happy, their brain is not so much under threat and then you're more able to work with those tissues. So I'll quite often say, oh, so, you know, at the moment we're preparing for Christmas. So what have you got your son for Christmas? What does he want? What does he really want this year? And then they'll think about that. They'll be happy. And you go, great, breathe in, breathe out and relax. So when we apply pressure, always sub-threshold and you're, you're kind of balancing on the threshold of what is acceptable pain-wise, what is acceptable threat-wise. Um, and the third thing that we know is that it's not the same for every person. So you can't do a standardized point. And that's because um, there are different areas of the body that get into tension or into pain at different times. Everyone's an individual. We use our bodies in different ways. So really, you need to look at what's going on in that person. So the studies, um, so there's seven trials of, of where we know adequately um, what they were doing to achieve the response in the tissues that they got. Um, six of those trials were positive, one was negative. And when you dig through the data and have a look at it, 
the t- trials that did really well um, looked at providing an individualized care. So they weren't just saying, go here, go here, go here. They used um, over about 15 minutes. Some of them were quite excessive. They're up to about 60, but it was generally around about 15 minutes worth of treatment. And they did more than five weeks to six weeks in a row. Um, and that's us doing more than five to six weeks, not the patient doing their homework for five to six weeks. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the one trial that didn't do so well and said that um, it, it still achieved a 20% improvement in patients, but it was nowhere near as good as biofeedback or um, stimulation, which I find interesting, was um, they used as hard a pressure as tolerable, so into the pain threshold point, they did it for five to ten minutes, very short periods of time. Um, they did quite a lot of repetitions. I think it was three times a week, but they only did it for three weeks. So, and in specific points. So they went mid um, ischiococcygeus, mid pubirotalis, anterior. Yeah, they had points. So I think that I mean it, it backs us up really well as physios that were very good at feeling where these points within the pelvis are sore and working with that tissue and everybody's an individual and that's what we should be doing to try and affect change but certainly the way that I work would be to apply those principles so everyone's different I'll go to wherever the patient's painful but I do have a little bit of a way that I work generally which is um, if the way I look at clock face everyone's different all over the world I've learned this Um, so I use uh, numbers as per the patient looking down on their own pelvic floor so their clitoris is 12 o'clock, their back passage is 6 o'clock. To the left-hand side, which is the left pelvic floor, would be 7 o'clock. To the right-hand side would be 5 o'clock. Um, I always go for 7 and 5 o'clock first, if I can get that far in. Um, because I find that if you, and whatever side's the most painful, I'll go to the other side. So I find that if you go for the largest belly of muscle bulk, where it attaches into the origin of the muscle, and you can get that moving, so I'm not just pressing, but I'm actually using um, breath in to prepare, breath out, pull your pelvic floor back in, um, using a back passage up and forwards, or bring your bones together, cue, whatever works for them. Even if it's the tiniest amount of activation, if they're then able to release, then I say, great, have another deep breath into your tummy, and I apply pressure as they're releasing. I may do sustained holds, um, and I might do... Uh, but I tend to do it more with with activating, releasing. And if you start at five and seven o'clock, then you what I found, and this is just again, I've got no research for it. So this is one of those evidence versus experience things. Um, but if you, I find that if I start on one side, say I start on five o'clock and uh, get them to release, and I get to the point where actually the muscle has got quite a nice amount of give in it. It feels like a soft ma- uh, marshmallow. When you go to the other side, it doesn't hurt. And you then are able to work with quite much more of a functional muscle. And quite often that's a brilliant moment. That's the moment of, of buy-in for your patient because that's a, um, oh, this is the point. How does this feel now? Okay, that's not too bad. All right, well, this was your eight out of 10. This was your, please don't touch that anymore. It really hurts. Yeah. Um, when you've got them on board. And I try and do it for about 10 to 15 minutes. And I talk a lot about their cats and their hobbies and all things nice in the world so the brain feels less threatened um but i do make my patients aware so they don't just think i'm <laughs> having a chat like a hairdresser inappropriately they know that i'm trying to make them happy but um yeah that's what i tend to do so that's what from a myofascial release point of view that's what we know should vaguely be happening 
So what are these tender points? Like, are they trigger points? Or that's, you know, been the, I think what a lot of people have called maybe myofascial release is trigger point release. um, And that the tender, painful nodules they feel within someone's pelvic floor um, have been termed trigger points for a really long time. So what's your opinion? Are these trigger points? What are trigger points? What is the consensus now? That's a really interesting question. Um, And the debate about trigger points continues, but I think that we are now at the point that we can say we have no evidence that they exist. Um, And John Quintner puts it a lot better than I can ever. So if you're able to go and find him and read him, do. But um, we, we have no viable evidence, no evidence at all that we have these kind of bundles of striated fibers, which are really tight and overactive and that, um, you know, with the muscle end tape. What, what we are beginning to find, and again, another term that I found when I was doing my reading was Frawley in 2015 came up with um, what she prefers, a term that she uses now, which is um, tension myalgia. And I quite like that because it kind of, it, it states, it's quite obvious what it's saying, but it also very specifically states what's going on. And we have a lot of interesting, really interesting stuff that we think is going on in the pelvic floor and it's not about how tight it is it's all about how tight it is and and not about it at all so we 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 don't have these nodules and I'm not saying at all that you don't feel them I you know I I get areas and I feel wow you know I can feel this bundle of tissue and it's really hard beneath my fingers or it's really tight and it's really painful for that patient and when I press on it even though it's in the posterior left annex that you get a pain in your bladder wow but that doesn't mean that it's a trigger point um, or that we've got an area that's referring pain um, from a nerve or, or anything that we used to think it was. Got a lot more interesting stuff going on. So um, I was really lucky to go to Washington and I got to hear um, my massive heroes speak. I was, yeah, a bit of a fangirl. Um, <laughs> it was really good. And I got to speak to them afterwards and they have got some really fantastic work over the last 10 years about what is actually going on in the pelvic floor. Um, so first off, Prof Chalimsky um, talks about autonomic issues in the pelvic floor. So we know that we get um, a change in our sympathetic nervous system, change in sympathetic nervous fibres within the um, viscera when we have endometriosis and we have um, fibromyalgia as well. We get a change in, um, in our sympathetic nervous fibres. That's also been observed in myofascial pelvic pain. So he has, with his teams, postulated that we get a change in our sympathetic vascular supply, which is really quite interesting. So if we're not we're not using our vascular supply so well within the pelvic floor, we're going to get a change in blood flow to the muscles. And that totally made sense in my mind because a while ago um, there was another paper came out by Mr. Peters that talked about neural edema, peripheral neural edema in the pelvic floor, and that we get potentially some of the sources of points of pain or areas of tenderness were due to um, edema around the nerves within the pelvic floor, like tiny, tiny nerves, nerves and nervi nervorum. And that makes total sense. So if we get a change in how our blood supply is working through the pelvic floor, we're going to get a pooling or an edema around the nervous system because the venous drainage isn't working as well. In response to that, he he thinks that you get a shortening, tightening of the muscle because it is in an ischemic, threatened state. Mm. 
Um, it's a bit of a chicken or an egg because we were kind of putting pieces together about why we might get that shortened state. But if you've got a shortened state, you're also going to get an ischemic state as well because you're not going to be able to perfuse your muscle tissue as well. And we know ischemia hurts. So that's the first kind of thing that's going on. The second thing that we know is going on is that we get motor changes within the brain. Um, we get changes in what the brain perceives is going on. We get changes in how much attention the brain pays to that area um, from a from essentially regulating point of view. And we also get changes from a peripheral point of view in how much information is sent up to the brain. So it's almost like a double whammy. You get over a period of time and it doesn't have to be long and it doesn't have to be a full-blown pain syndrome it can be someone that's got pelvic pain because they've got atrophic vaginitis and sex was frictionful and painful for once and they go into a bit of a spasm in response to that um but we know that we get a change over time in how the uh the scent how the receptors at the level of the pelvic floor Report. So the threshold becomes much more reduced. So they're much more likely to give you a greater amount of stimulus from a smaller input. And that means that this brain is getting all of this input, loads and loads and loads of stimulus, which it then decides is a noxious, threatening um, stimulus. And then the result of that is that we get pain. And so much like when I explain it to my patients, I say that if you cut your arm really badly, if you stick your finger in the cut, it'll hurt, but it won't hurt that much compared to the bit around, which is really, really, really raw and tender and, and really painful. And the reason why the bit around that is really tender and painful, even though there's nothing wrong with that broken, that not broken bit of skin, is because it's the brain saying, look, don't go any further, don't touch any further because you've got an injured area and you don't want to make it worse. And pelvic floor going into spasm and reporting that amount of pain is that brain process again saying hang on you're under threat you need to look after yourself pay more attention to that area so it really all comes down to how our nervous system assumes what's going on is noxious and therefore puts things in place to prevent you doing any further harm and we have really 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 good evidence now um because jason kutch and all the map research network guys and girls who are again i'm a massive fan girl they're really cool they are, they've done loads of functional MRI studies looking at what is actually happening in the brains of people with urological pelvic pain or with vulvodynia or with endometriosis. And there's so much of an overlap in all of them that we get these the same changes. We get motor, cortis, motor cortex maladaptations and we also get sensory cortex changes. So we pay more attention to our pelvic floor. We get more information from our pelvic floor at a lower threshold. Um, and we get responses in relation to that pressure or sensation or whatever's going on that are um, in line with responses that we would make to threat. So another thing I say to patients is, well, you, your brain thinks that you're currently being bitten by a bear. You've got a big old bear down there and we need to get rid of that bear, which is why we're going to make your brain happy. So when I'm doing myofascial release, I don't for a, a minute kid myself into thinking that I'm actually doing anything to the muscle tissues, which might be a bit of a contentious statement <laughs> um, but I think what we're actually doing is we've made that therapeutic relationship with the patient so by the point that I'm assessing them I've probably spent about 40 minutes with them at least 
um, they know that I care. They know that I'm paying attention and that I really hear them. Then we are doing something which is gentle. We're using eye contact. We're reading their body language. We're trying to constantly put them at ease. So we are absolutely talking to their brain. And we're talking to that autonomic system and saying, you're not under threat. It's okay. This is a stimulus, stimulus that you've had before, but it's actually coming from a non-noxious um, uh, situation. And you don't need to think it's pain. So we're kind of psychologically saying that, but also I am physically saying that to the patient. So when I'm doing things, I say things and they, I say to them, you're going to think I'm crazy, but I'm just going to talk to your brain for a while. So just keep listening to me. But, you know, I'm placing my finger there. Can you feel that that's my finger? Remember, it's in a glove. It's a blue glove. I like colored gloves. Um, I think they put people more at ease. Um, and I talk them through exactly what we're doing. I know all physios that I've talked to do this that work in pain. We talk them through what we're doing, where we're touching, how we're touching. Um, and that starts to change that threat response. It won't be in the first session, but certainly by three or four sessions in, you see it all the time. Three or four sessions in, there you are, back to bounce on someone's pelvic floor again, and they just totally jump up on the bed, they're unchanged, they're ready to go, they have no issues. And it's a completely different situation. So you have changed that input stimulus for that patient by a month in. The second thing that I think we're doing is some of that peripheral stuff. So with the kind of localized neural edema, by physically trying to change the position of the muscles, you're going to improve that venous drainage. So some of the potential for peripheral noxious stimuli from overactivity of um, the uh, abnormal impulse generating sites and all of the kind of the nerve endings within the pelvic floor. If we can change how those, how the threshold for them firing by reducing the noxious potential for noxious stimuli around them, by reducing the, vein, um, reducing the, the edema, then we're really going to change that. We're also giving them good motor information. So their motor centers have completely changed. They don't know where their pelvic floor is. They don't realize that it's up around their ears somewhere. Um, so we are physically changing that through getting the muscle to move. We're giving them appropriate feedback and put that together with, again, changing their sensory input, because that's what I'm trying to do. I'm there saying to them, this doesn't hurt. <laughs> yeah, this is just my finger. Think about the fact it's just my finger. Feel my other finger on your arm. Feel my look at my finger. This is how hard I'm pressing. I'm giving them that feedback. So we're changing their sensory input as well. I, I take... I take, not offence, that's the wrong word, um, I take issue with anyone that thinks that you can change sarcomere length in one session. Because um, that's, I, yeah, I think maybe there are cleverer brains than, uh, you know, the, than the people at Washington that I was talking to that we need to talk to about sarcomere length, but I don't think that you can physically stretch a pelvic floor in one session. I think you probably can over time. Again, it's six weeks, but I think in that one session, I'm not doing any stretching. I am just applying a pressure to say to the nervous system, calm down, you can release this muscle. Which, um, at the end of the day, a mixture of those three things is where we get a change. And the change doesn't come, the change is um, concurrent. So we don't just get a change in the muscle tissue tension, which then makes all the symptoms magically better. We change how the brain perceives the whole of that area. So we're really changing how um, the brain feels it needs to keep the pelvic floor in tension. And at the same time, it feels like it needs to tell you that you need the toilet because you've got 10 mils in your bladder. 
because it needs to make you aware. So you get a concurrent visceral overflow and kind of symptom change. Um, and so I think as physios, we need to really pat ourselves on the back for actually how much we're doing, because hopefully this is not anything new to people, but it's, you know, you, we, what we're doing is so much more complex than what we think we are. Um, we put it in easy terms for our patients. You've got a tight pelvic floor, we need to release it. I need to make you feel under less threat. We're going to make this feel a bit more comfy. But, you know, we are doing complex um, therapy with our brains, really. Well, and, and you're, doing, you're doing more than just the myofascial release for those patients. That's just the one component. Then you're also addressing yeah. the nervous system via other avenues, diet, breathing, exercise, all yeah. the all the other things as well. Um, so if so, if you say it takes um, you know about weekly treatments for about six weeks to have the greatest effect, is it? Yeah. Are you saying the greatest effect or kind of the beginning of effects? I would say the point at which, in most of the studies, um, they started to see change. Not all of them reported okay. weekly. It's frustrating. So when I mine, someone, I did for twelve months, yeah. but I did six weeks. Of therapist hands-on. Okay, because if say around three or four weeks, they're still not changing a lot. Do you do you mm -hmm. find you just kind of persist those next couple weeks? Because again, like with most things that we do in physiotherapy, if people aren't responding or having a, a change, generally within a short period of time, then you tend to change what you're doing in order to get some response. So do you find that making sure you're doing it for um, that, that six-week time, if, if at, say, three or four weeks, they're still just as sore and painful and scared and fearful despite all the other stuff that you're doing, do you still kind of persist with it? Yes and no. Um, so one of the things that came out of... Um, when I looked at women using wand and doing my fascia release, is that they all flared at some point. Um, and the flares, uh, they all started to flare around about two weeks. Um, so at three weeks, they were coming in telling me, my symptoms are worse, it's all got worse. But actually on their scores and their outcomes, they were already, they'd already made a significant difference. So the flare was coming to a lower level than when they started, which was really reassuring for them to see. But everyone flared at least once, if not twice during that six weeks. So there is an element of yes, persist, expect there to be flares, um, crack on, because we know that you need to reinforce to the brain for a long period of time that you're going to put a new structure, a new kind of, we need to build a neurotag that says pelvic floor can be in a relaxed state and that's okay. So we need to re reinforce this to the brain. But certainly, if you're having someone that's really not responding to treatment, you're going to be looking at the other things. So the thing, myofascial release, um, is a, an element, a key element of my treatment, but it's only one of millions of things. So one of the things that I would immediately look at is what are the stresses in someone's life and what do they need to be doing to make them feel good? And in a lot of cases, it will be, um, do we need to talk about mindfulness? Do we need to talk about you having some soul time? Whatever words that work for each patient. Um, how much exercise are you getting? And it's a, it's a, a careful balance because we know that exercise can increase the activity in the pelvic floor just because you're increasing activity everywhere and the pelvic floor needs to help stabilize the pelvis but since certainly since Washington all of my patients are doing interval training as well because that's one of the things that came out showing um, it helps with our immune system and how that 
also which also has a huge effect on visceral visceral pain um so if we can get them interval training and it, it's as simple as walking and walking faster but i've said you know i said to them what's going on and actually i can think of a patient the other week who um we've been working for quite a while and i just said well you know what's what's been happening oh well it was good and then it got worse and then this happened and we we started talking and actually there were two or three horrendous things that had occurred and that you know members of her family had had large um health scares um she'd also lost a job in the last week and i said well no wonder you're feeling under threat or you know at the moment because you've had these big life events happening so how can we be nice to your body be kind to your body this week and be kind to your body next week to see if we can get you back on track feeling a bit better um you know it, at those moments you, you have to judge it but i think as pelvic health physios were very good at talking to people um we're very good at kind of getting into them and what makes them tick because you have to be if you're going to be working with someone so intimately so taking a step back and saying what else is going on um is really important are you getting time out in nature are you seeing some trees are you just really stressed about your job um can we take you out of yourself a little bit um but yeah persist at least six weeks um all of the studies show at least six weeks is when we start getting a change that is a bit more uh, has a greater longevity um with much better carryover but i looked at 12 weeks so i did a six week follow up afterwards of just seeing what were women able to achieve and how much and actually everyone that just came to physio once a week did really well and they continued to maintain what they had achieved with me that they had exactly the same scores 6 weeks later which is really heartening it means that physio is working and for women that don't want to do any internal work themselves that you are going to help them and you are going to give them a significant change in their quality of life but for those that continued when they weren't seeing me for 6 weeks to do some pelvic floor work themselves twice a week they continued to improve I was going to um, say do you get them doing anything themselves and is that kind of similar to really similar to what we are doing with trying to get their brain their nervous system and their brain to relax and calm down Yeah absolutely and it's I would say it's as important and it's an important step for every person that you're treating to get them to engage with their pelvic floor um so with with the women I got them um that was a one trial so they were using a therawand twice a week for 15 minutes Um in some of them they were just inserting it to begin with just to get used to the feeling um and relaxing around it and then in others we uh, again it was patient by patient specific there was a generalized protocol but they were starting with exactly the same as I would do so 5 or 7 o'clock trying to just get that muscle to move and to be a bit calmer so in a, a, a more com- comfortable resting tone um for up to about 15 minutes but in not in the trial situation most of my patients are using their thumbs The only population actually that I find I use ones with all the time are my Ehlers Danlos patients. So the ones with really really poor ligament laxity, mm. I find that they dislocate if they try to do their pelvic floor which is really painful. So actually using a wand is is really helpful with those patients. But um yeah, they they all my patients are at some point because it's it's important a lot of a lot of women that when they're in so much pain don't want to touch down there. and it's one of the best things that they can do to start saying to their brain this area shouldn't hurt i don't i'm not under attack there is not a bear eating me if they can touch themselves because if they can believe that they're not going to hurt themselves their hurt is not harming them 
And that's what I say to them a lot of the time. You've got to remember your hurt is not harming you. You're not doing anything bad. You're saying it's okay. Calm down. So I do a lot of, um, even if they can't get to the point of inserting, and it tends to be a thumb, just because they're a lot easier. So opposite thumb to opposite side. If they're able to knee up on the side of a bath or in the shower, in bed with one with, with knees up reclined, um, but up on lots of pillows because you need to be supported forwards leaning to be able to get to your pelvic floor. But even if they're if not able to put it inside or if they're not able to um, psychologically do that, then they might able to be able to start touching with some lubricant just to do some desensitisation around the introitus or certainly later stage therapy with my patients, it would be um, the bladder pain, it would be around the urethra and the, the clitoris region, um, just touching and gently massaging. But also while they're doing that as a little bit of a mantra to themselves, they have to say, this is not harming me. I am not in pain. I I'm in pain, but it's um, my brain is just feeling threatened. It's me doing it. I'm helping. I'm massaging things that are soothing to them. And a lot of the time, I will try. And sometimes maybe I just get myself wound up in circles, but I try to get them to do it when they're in a better brain state. And once I've spent time un- getting them to understand that, they're then their process will be right. On a Tuesday night, I have to do my mindfulness for ten minutes do something like happify i don't know if you've come across that happify yeah it's again it was presented at congress it's um a psychological um app i think that um it was a huge amount of research behind it but they know that doing certain things like a kind act for someone else or a um uh what else was it um focusing on your strengths thinking about what strengths you have every day reviewing the day and thinking about one good thing that happened during the day really releases the brain to be in a slightly different state of mind which can um, certainly with chronic pelvic pain improve function uh, improve the therapy that you're about to do so um, and they found patients improve their quality of life basically I think I think they use it for coping strategies but there was some really interesting interplay with what was coming through about the autonomic function in pelvic pain so we know that um, um, one of my favorite doctors Dr Melissa Farmer um, presented loads about um, the the changes in autonomic regulation but also sensation and motor cortex in rats with thrush and lots of other stuff but she says pain is a primary reinforcer and she also presented in how that whatever so if you're in pain you won't do that thing because it, it it's a really good way of reinforcing whatever strategy you have in place at that moment in time so she also presented that whatever causes or or starts the pain is not what maintains it yeah. and what i mean by causes or starts it's whatever se- signature or sequence in the brain that occurs when a stimulus comes in from the vulva or from the bladder or from the pelvic floor which is interpreted as a noxious stimulus and emits pain is not the way that the brain continues to maintain it. So the brain will turn to the limbic system to maintain it, which is where our emotions are held. So if your brain is in pain for a long period of time, it goes, I'm really tired. I've got to be aware of um, other bears. I've got to be looking out for these bears, but my brain is taken up with this one bear that's constantly biting me. And so it shifts the responsibility to the limbic system. You get um, an emotional control then of your pain which is slightly terrifying as a physio but also completely validates everything we ever see yeah. which is that you know emotions are wound up in our pain and how we 
how we treat people is incredibly emotional. I've always said this to my to my my physios that I work with or my juniors that I'm training that you have to give of yourself a little bit. This is the one career that I know within physio that you really have to be in a place where you can allow people to be emotionally vulnerable. And I had that confirmed to me with functional MRI studies a couple of months ago, which is great. So yeah, going back to the Happify thing, the Happify opens up and allows that limbic system to be a bit more modulated. So if I can get patients into a calm, happy state of mind, either by you do it after your interval training or you've been to the gym or you do it after your breathing techniques and you have to do it with some um, uh, thought about a nice thing that you've done today. If that's opening a door for a lady, an old lady or, um, you know, whatever kind act that you've done. And then you do your myofascial release. We've got that brain into a slightly more plastic state. And I think this is the this is probably what I'm going to spend the next, I don't know, 30 years playing with is how we we get that plasticity within the brain as we're trying to intervene just so that as physios we can be really effective because we're working in a certainly in the UK a place where we need to be super effective because we have not got enough of us and the NHS is very stretched so if we can be achieving that quicker that would be better. So do you you're talking about the wands that you use um, do you find that you use them as often as, because you said the people who were entered into the study, they all use the wand, but most of your patients, you just get them to use your thumb. So you get people to use their, their hands more so than wands most of the time. Yeah, absolutely. Hands are a lot more portable than wands. People get embarrassed about carrying wands around. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's only about 10 to 20% of my patients that are using ones at any one time. Um, and it is only in those cases where they physically can't reach because of mobility issues, but they're really keen to do it or they really psychologically need a tool, um, which makes them feel like they're doing something medical. For men, if my men are doing any physical release and a lot of my guys don't, I don't do, they don't do physical release themselves. They're doing squat position, breath, or they're doing other kind of stretches in different positions. Um, guys use them just because it's really difficult to access otherwise from an anal point of view. And do you use dilators ever or just the wand? I have a real feminist issue with dilators. <laughs> I have a real issue with um, possibly just because of the, the people that I've come across that have prescribed them in the way they have. But I have a real issue with the women that have come to see me and said, yeah, they, they've given me these dilators and told me to insert them and relax around them. Like, like the vagina is a place that's meant to be for something else to be put in it. I don't know. I much prefer fingers and I much prefer wands just because they're mobile. It's much more functional. It's much more um, it's much more realistic. It's what happens in there. Whereas a dilator is very much kind of like lie back and think of England, um, which I have a bit of an issue with. But maybe that's just me. So I, I tend to I actually I don't think I've ever used dilators apart from in the cases where you really need to. So post radiotherapy or somebody with a really stenotic vagina um no I, I much prefer ones and I even use ones for dilation just because they're mobile and the minute that you use something on yourself and you are manipulating it we know that your self-efficacy improves and we know that that physically improves your pain yeah um, so yeah dilators nah, not something that I'd use so even with like dyspareunia you don't find that you, you like I think in my mind, I would I would use them as like a graded exposure to 
like girth so that you're not going from something that's really small to then a penis because it can be a really big jump. Yeah, um, I think, uh, have you come across the Sensate protocol? Yes. Who was I yeah, just talking so, to about that? Maybe it was Melissa Farmer, I think. Yeah, it's yes. a lovely, lovely protocol. Um, so we've got a great psychosexual um, team in the NHS, actually, but also they, they do some private work with us. And I don't find that I need to um, mm. because I'll start women up with, uh, very very gentle work with me so it might just be external and then going to internal work and we're being really careful and gentle then they get to the point where they're able to to actually interact with themselves in some way and relax and then the protocol kicks in so it's kind of uh, three stages external stim, um, external touch that's non-genital then it's secondly genital touch that's non-noxious um, by your partner or yourself and then third stage is penetration non-noxious um, and I find that actually they cope with it really well. You've just got to, you've got to pitch it at the right time. But how do you the get non-noxious non penetration of, like, if the penis is, pen, like, if the, if the penis gives them pain when it's penetrating, then how's that non-noxious? Or what are you using for non-noxious? The wand? So you have to work out what is causing the pain. So if it is that the muscle, uh, the muscle tissues are being loaded in a way that they are not happy with, you haven't done your job because you have to get to the point where that those pelvic floor muscles can be moved, mobile and not respond with pain. Yeah. And that's physio, but also them touching themselves Um then you have to work and the stages are as long as they're long. So I, I say to my patients, this is a three stage process, aim to do it in six months. Um, most of them are absolutely fine well before that. But if you, you've got to get to the point where you have um, a pelvic floor that's very happy to be palpated before you even do stage two. And stage mm -hmm. two is about roused. Um, and if they're able to do stage two, I mean, your, your pa patients are really clever and you say to them, look, you're. Your default setting is threat. Your default setting is a bear's going to eat me. Fingers are really terrifying. And I'll get partners in to discuss sensate stuff. And I'll say, look, when you're touching her, you've got to really do what she says because fingers are scary. They're pointy and they hurt things because that's what's happened to them before. So working with working with her to get her to the point where from a, a physical touch point of view, she doesn't respond with any noxious stimuli to or noxious output to your stim to your palpation then getting her working with her partner on arousal but it might just be in really differing um, erogenous zones so neck and shoulders and head and lots of other areas to the point where then actually you can go and do the arousal but you're you're telling her look your, your default setting is threat so what you've got to be thinking about is all those great exercises that you've done on relaxing your pelvic floor and feeling calm um, we do a lot of mindfulness visualizations just to um, uh, to again get the brain kind of playing ball. Whatever color that they're visualizing, that they keep that color and they don't change it into their pain color or their hot color or whatever it is, their burning color, um, while they're being aroused. And most, I try not to over um, overanalyze it too much because, and I do say to them at some point that most people tip over into number three without without being prompted hmm. that they'll have done stage two enough that they'll have spent their half an hour arousing each other and then it's just too much and they really want to have sex yeah. and 
the first time that it happens without any pain, it will just continue to be generally fine afterwards. But yeah, I, I don't, um, maybe it's me, but certainly I don't feel the need to use dilators as a halfway stage because again, it's just it's just not normal. You you don't you don't lie down and put something up you to mm. get aroused. Yeah. Um, well, I think still a big part of the graded it. exposure with the dilators, I well, at least from how I learned it, um, there there wasn't the arousal portion of it. It was no. clinical. So yeah. again, you then have this big jump to go from even if you can fit that third or fourth one in to then having intercourse. There's so much more involved that then when they have pain, you're like, but it's you. You can accommodate that size. That's not what the problem is. Yes, yeah, no, not it's the what it is. So yeah, I, I really nice. I I think the one thing I would use is a halfway stage or something like a vibrator. Again, you're getting that connection. Um, they can use it internally, externally. Yeah. And as long as it's feeling good while they're doing it, and I, that's what I say to my patients, you know, you've got to you've got to make sure you're feeling good. You've got to enjoy it. He's got to do his job. You've got to do your job to make sure you're enjoying it because then your brain's not under threat. Yeah. And the minute it's under threat, you've either got to really um, work on that state of arousal and fear because it tends to be the fear within them that it's going to hurt. Hmm. So you need to be educating, educating. But yeah, a vibrator. I much prefer a vibrator to a, a dilator. So you're going to be doing some online courses. Are you going to do something like this? What are, what are, what's coming out? Um, well, I am definitely going to be putting up the Happy Bladder course, which yeah. is my visceral pain course. So that's going to have um, all aspects of a, a kind of the background knowledge that you need to know about the brain a bit more in detail. Is this patients or professionals? Who's this for? Uh, professionals to begin with. Okay. Um, I much. I try to do free stuff for, for um, patients because I think it's um, unethical to some degree to be selling it to them. Yeah. Um, so this is all professional stuff so that we can all be absolute bladder heroes and visceral pain heroes. Um, assessment and treatment stuff. There will also be little technique classes and labs and things, um, but it's obviously not as much as you get on a course. But yeah. I think if we all start talking about it a bit more, it'd be great. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm, I love when people start doing some online stuff because I like face to face too, but <clears throat> I can't really fly around the world. That's why I love doing the podcast because I get to talk to people like you and just sit there and go, oh, this is so great. Free learning. Yeah, and I think it's, it's really important as an international community we're talking. I've learned so much over the last three or four years from all of our international physios and the kind of the online groups um even this week I had some um mentoring with Julie Weeb which was incredible um and I got loads from I've got fantastic mentors in the UK around me but it's just really good to be able to connect with people over the world because we are doing the same thing humans are humans the world over so um it's really good so this is my little hello to the world, hopefully. 2018, watch this space. Woohoo! Oh, I'm really excited. Um, oh, thank you so much. Was there anything else that you wanted to add with respect to pelvic floor muscle, tension, wands, trigger points? It's so hard to, to cover a lot in an hour. Yeah, I think um, it's just that it's not it's not about the wand. It's what you're doing with it that counts and it's more marvelous and more beautiful and more complex than we think it is and um you know physios are doing an incredible thing and i think for a long time the soft skills as they used to get called all the psychological skills the connecting with the patient would be classed as oh they've just got a good manner 
but actually that's one of the key things that we do so I think um when I say that it's not about trigger points it's not about you know, getting rid of the trigger point which causes the bladder pain. I'm not belittling what people are doing. I'm actually saying what you're doing is really cool and much more complex and much more beautiful. Um, so keep doing it. Hope you guys loved that show. Now, if you are looking for one of those wands, pelvicfloorexercise.com.au sells them. They also ship internationally. So if you type in www.pelvicfloorexercise.com, .com.au. You head over to the little shop tab. Down on the list that comes up, you go to pelvic pain. There's a whole bunch of other things um, that you can use for pelvic pain in through there, but the pelvic wand is there as well if you guys are looking for where to find it. Last thing, if you guys can leave a review on the Apple iTunes under the Pelvic Health Podcast, it will help more people um, know that this podcast is available and of course Apple never makes things really easy but if you go to search in the Apple app then type in the pelvic health podcast and you just scroll down there'll be a little section for rating and reviews you can put you know hopefully five stars and then leave a comment if you need and if you have any questions you can always get a hold of me have a good day